Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis. Thank you for listening. The 15th annual Atlanta Children's Film Festival is starting tomorrow, and coming up, we'll hear how the festival aims to inspire the next generation of media creators. But first, it's March of 2020. Alexander Sasha Sandarnovsky is excited that his closest friends will finally gather in his favorite place on earth, the House on the Hill. This is the setting for Our Country Friends, the recent novel by the Soviet-born American writer Gary Steingart. The author celebrated his 50th birthday yesterday, and in honor of his half-century milestone, let's listen back to Lois's November conversation with Steingart. He first explained why he chose to switch gears from what he had been writing in March of 2020 and instead create a novel that takes place during the COVID pandemic lockdown. I had been writing a dystopian novel before, a kind of funny academic dystopian novel uh, set in a future where New York University, NYU, had taken over much of Manhattan. And <laughs> Funny hijinks ensued after that, but uh, given that the pandemic and the political situation in our country was becoming far more dystopian than anything even my very dystopian disposed mind could imagine, I very quickly switched gears and began to make up the eight characters that populate this book, characters who are, in the most part, immigrants from all over the world or children of immigrants and a couple of uh, native-born Americans, but starting to put them together into my little menagerie in upstate New York, about 100 miles north of New York. Wow. Early in the book, you write, Russian is a language built around the exhalation of warmth and pain. Both those qualities are abundant in this novel as well. Would you introduce us to those main characters you mentioned? Sure. So as you mentioned, there's Alexander or Sasha Sindorovsky, and he's kind of an avatar for me in a way, because he's a Russian novelist who spends most of his time in the countryside, as I do in upstate New York. His wife is Masha, and she's also Russian-born, unlike my wife. And she's a psychiatrist who deals mainly with elderly Russians who believe in these crazy conspiracy theories that have been going around. And they have a daughter, Natasha. So it's Sasha, Masha, and Natasha. <laughs> And 
The daughter is adopted from China. She's about eight years old. She's very precocious and is undergoing a bit of an identity crisis. And to that little family, he's invited five guests. Three of them are his best friends, um, or I'm sorry, rather two of them are his best friends growing up. Uh, Karen Cho, a Korean American woman who has become incredibly wealthy because she has this app that works like a love potion. People take a photo of themselves and then they fall in love. And it's a big hit, but also has a lot of problems attached to it as many of the uh, spouses of those who have fallen in love are now suing Karen and her company. Uh, then there is Vinod Mehta. He's an Indian American gentleman who's also a best friend of Karen and Sasha and went to the same high school with them. And his life is not so great. He is uh, quite sick or has been quite sick. He's lost a lung to cancer. And then there's a Korean dandy named Ed Kim. And then uh, an American-born essayist from the South uh, called Dee Cameron. She's from South Carolina. And she grew up very poor. And she's of the left. But sometimes she also tacks far right when she needs more attention from social media. And into this group of friends is thrown a final uh, grenade, so to speak. And that's the actor. And we don't find out his first name until very late in the book. And the actor is this gentleman one of the most attractive and handsome actors ever, ever lived. And everyone promptly falls in love with him. And he really wreaks havoc across the, this little bungalow colony of sorts by having all these different affairs. So uh, all of them are put together into this pressure cooker. Uh, the pandemic is happening, but it's not exactly happening in the bungalow colony, at least at first. Uh, it's happening elsewhere. The actor is the least likable. Of. I, actually, I think he is the only unlikable character of the entire group. But, Gary, I have to say, if Sasha is your avatar, I think you're not being very kind to yourself because <laughs> you, you are not selfish in that way. No, I, I like to take things that are familiar to me, take someone like me, but also sort of, you know, the way people change the sound levels. I like to think of what would happen if I was, I don't know, less successful, uh, perhaps less empathic. Uh, and so I, you adjust the character for that because, you know, my life has, knock on wood, been fairly okay with a couple of exceptions. So um, there's not that much to write about in terms of characters because you need tension to have a character. So I think I would turn to maybe a younger version of myself, a younger, angrier less happy, less psychoanalyzed, if you will, version of myself. The character of Vinut reflects on why Anton Chekhov is universally loved. Please tell us how the great Russian playwright informs both the structure and content of your book. Sure. So the book is actually structured like a four-act play with everything that that entails. And at the end of the book, I don't think I'm spoiling too much by revealing this, but a production of Uncle Vanya is staged. And plays like The Cherry Orchard and Uncle Vanya were heavily in my mind because so much of Chekhov's work is usually set in a country house. And also, as I was writing it, I was rereading some of my favorite of his short stories uh, about love, gooseberries, the man in the shell, you know, all these short stories are set in the countryside. There's usually some protagonists who are telling stories about other protagonists. And at the same time, they're sort of looking at their lives and thinking, well, 
this didn't go right and that didn't go right, but this did go right and this, this is okay. And they're also reevaluating their friendships. And all of this is very important because that's really the meat of this book. I mean, it's a pandemic novel, of course, but also friendships are the real, is the real uh, linchpin of this book. The pandemic is really just the, you know, what's happening is just the uh, background, the way, you know, if you were writing from 1933 to 1945, the uh, world, the upheavals of the world, and then the war that came would be sort of, no matter what you were writing, if it was a love story or anything, obviously that would figure in, in your writing. And similarly, a book that's set in 2020 would of course encompass the pandemic. Sure. Why is the country estate with its bungalows so important to Sasha? Well, it's important to Sasha for, I think, pretty much the same reason it's important to me. That's another little autobiographical detail. When I was growing up, when I'd come to America, I didn't speak English well or pretty much at all. Uh, and we, there was a little bungalow colony, very cheap and poor and uh, very ramshackle kind of little bungalows, but uh, across the river from where I'm talking to you right now, across the Hudson River and uh, in the Catskill Mountains. And we would go there for the summers and our parents would stay behind working in the city, but our grandmothers and us would be upstate. And that was my happiest moments of my childhood because everyone spoke my language, which at that point was mainly Russian. And we just, you know, we horsed around, we were friends, we fell in love, all these different things happened. It was very sweet. Sasha pines for that very much. And in fact, that's why he has replicated and built, you know, four little cottages for all of his friends so that he can situate them there as well. I, in real life, only have one little cottage, a little guest house for my friends who also come up from the, from the city. Uh, that's been happening a little less under COVID, but some of the happiest memories of my present life are having my uh, friends revolve around having my friends over and grilling and cooking and drinking and all the good stuff that also happens uh, in this novel. So uh, that country aspect of it is very much important both to my childhood and to my life now as it is to Sasha's. If you are just joining us, this is WABE City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with the author Gary Steinhardt about his new novel, Our Country Friends. You write that Sasha served as a diplomat between his two feuding parents for decades. What impact of that do we see in his behavior toward others? Well, I think Sasha is very, he's always worried that things will fall out between his friends and between his wife. He doesn't like fighting. Um, as the book progresses, certain secrets are revealed from the past. And so fights become inevitable. But for someone like him, who has always served as you mentioned as a diplomat between his parents, and that's also uh, congruent with my own experience. My parents don't fight very much now, but when we came to this country and especially under the rigors of immigration, they were always fighting chiefly about money of which we had very little. And I would always sort of try to interpose myself because I thought that, you know, we were already so barricaded in by the, the country and not knowing the culture and the language and wearing these strange, very furry clothes that, uh, you know, we had to stick together at least as a unit of three. And so I, I very much uh, served as a diplomat and, and Sasha does that between his friends and also between his friends and his wife and also between himself and his wife so, <laughs> and himself and his child. So there's a lot of diplomacy going on. Indeed. At different points, certain characters took turns as my favorite in the book. 
I mean, I will not forget these characters. And while she isn't endearing, your introduction of Dee Cameron had me laughing and in awe of your writing. Would you read the second paragraph on page 41, please? Mm -hmm. She might have to put on an aggressive front, demonstrate her strength. Her essays were the equivalent of a new prisoner coming up to the toughest inmate in the can and slugging them right in the face. <laughs> he wrote with a disdain for weak-bellied sentiment mixed in with tough love observations about the social class that had recently welcomed her into their messy brownstones. Sometimes her prose devolved into regional drawl and when, what, what one review called euallisms. As a corollary, she owned a beautiful pair of 1970s cowgirl boots of a deep red color with rainbow stitching flaring out in sunburst patterns. Not that any of her kin had ever worn anything of the sort. Because she was tall and her face angular, her eyes a repository for a deep alien blue, she knew the boots and something simple like a, ple like a peasant blouse would bring out a host of Pavlovian reactions in a wide cross-section of educated East Coast men. All she had to do was open her mouth and confuse the situation. She had always been politically nebulous and often mentioned the fact that when Joan Didion was her age, Didion was the stylistic godmother minus the regionalism, she had been a Nixon supporter in the early 60s. My animus toward you runs on its own special fuel, she warned the reader at the start of her collection of essays. So y'all best mind your preconceptions. This pigeon will not be whole. <laughs> Do not mess with D. And yes, mess with D. <laughs> I mean, I love that ingratiating is about as remote from her world as it could possibly be. And her very name is a literary reference, another of your playful way with words. That being to Boccaccio's, the Boccaccio's, the Decameron, which is a collection of stories traded by characters who were waiting out the Black Death in a Tuscan villa. Would you tell us about the framed quote that hangs in her cottage? Love takes off masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. And that's, of course, from James Baldwin. And I've known that quote for a while, but I don't remember how it came into my mind. But obviously, I was thinking of the masks that we were wearing during the pandemic, and which led me to a bunch of different thoughts because um, I've had friends who have been single forever who have fallen in love during the pandemic. Uh, and have developed relationships during the pandemic, which they for some reason couldn't have done before. And in part, I think they were, you know, they were when they met their future beloved, they were wearing uh, masks. So the masking was a very interesting part of the pandemic because we only got to see half of each other's faces when we saw each other's faces at all. So for somebody who's a writer and for somebody who writes about immigrants the way I do, and immigrants, of course, especially as they're adjusting to this country as I had when I was a kid, are always wearing a mask because you always have to adjust yourself to, the, uh, to what you perceive others need from you. And I know that that's true, of course, of many marginalized groups in America. The way you have to, I think the term is code switch between uh, the way that you have been brought up to speak or look, et cetera, and what sort of genteel society expects from you. 
so all of these characters uh, have been wearing masks and even the actor who, yes, is not the most lovable and cuddliest of characters, but is very much needed to provide some uh, ballast for this novel. Even he, of course, wears a mask quite a bit because of his very profession. So masks and that quote from James Baldwin, I think, fit in very nicely into the, into the book. Indeed. Nowadays, we often hear mention of self-awareness. I don't know if that description is apt, but part of what's striking in this novel are references that characters make just as that thought may occur to the reader. For example, Masha compares Sasha's gathering with his friends to a personal reenactment of the big chill. I mean, it was a nanosecond after that registered in my head, Gary. In your creative process, do such associations and humor come as quickly as they feel on the page? Yes, very much so. I was just writing this and all of a sudden I remembered the big chill. And it's funny because I think some of our younger readers will have to look it up. Uh, <laughs> it a movie in the 1980s and I remember being obsessed with that movie. It was on some network when I was a kid. We didn't see it in the movie theater. And I was obsessed with it because I didn't even, I did not understand all of it because I was a child and it was about very grown up relationships. It's the conceit of the movie, uh, for those who haven't heard or seen it, it's a group of University of Michigan graduates, one of whom commits suicide and the rest of them gather for his funeral. And so, you know, it has some similarities to our country friends. There was a suicide in this book, but all these friends are gathered because of a tragedy. In this case, it's the pandemic. But um, I remember being obsessed with that movie and not fully understanding it because I didn't understand grownups because I was a little kid and I didn't understand English well enough to get catch all of the nuances of of language and class and all, all these things among these educated groups of people. But for some reason I thought, wow, if I ever ever figure this, this movie out, I, I will have really become an American. So this, um, as this was going on, as I was writing this, I, I thought that Masha would maybe, because she also grew up around the time I came here and, and was the same age as I am and the same age as Sasha, that she would probably make that reference. And then I went and downloaded The Big Chill and watched it for the first time in God knows how many years since the 80s and absolutely loved it still. Oh, um, yes. And the soundtrack is so yeah. amazing. Of course, of course, the soundtrack, starting with uh, I Heard It From The Grapevine. Yes, and I remember when I had enough pages together and I was sort of telling my brilliant editor about what the book, you know, he asked me what I was working on and I said I had abandoned that NYU novel and I was working on, uh, and I called it uh, Chekhov Meets the Big Chill. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, okay, that sounds intriguing, you know. <laughs> Author Gary Steingart from his November interview with City Lights host Lois Reitzis. We'll return to more of their conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and it is great to have you along. Let's return now to Lois's November interview with author Gary Steingart. The author turned 50 yesterday, and his book, Our Country Friends, has been hailed as the first great literary novel of the pandemic. One of the themes Steingart explores is cultural identity, and here he explains how his characters' cultural backgrounds add to their understanding and respect for one another. I think this very much mirrors the kind of upbringing I had, where the first, some of the first good friends I made were sort of cross-cultural friends. I went to a math and science high school in New York City where many of the kids were Korean, Indian, Chinese, and many were Russian. And we were all sort of lumped together. And growing up in my college years, especially after college in my 20s, so many of my friends were from those backgrounds. And we all kind of, just as the characters in this book, we all kind of became closer than friends. There was almost a kind of parenting going on because our parents, though lovely people, were so, I think, overwhelmed by trying to make money, trying to make sense of this country in a way that we could and they never fully could. And their advice was always a little bit off. I was just finished an article for Esquire magazine about this very subject. And I was talking to some of my older fr oldest friends about some of the advice, for example, romantic advice that, that their parents gave them. And one friend of mine who emigrated from India as a child said his father said, you know, your muscle tone is so poor, no woman will ever love you. So you have to become an engineer. Uh, to, to earn some money. <laughs> and we all had, we all got crazy advice like this, career advice, etc. So in a sense, I think we all turned to each other and we all did things for each other that many of us were only children like myself and we kind of all filled in for one another. So I remember I was the writer in the group, so I would write everyone's cover letters and everyone's uh, resumes and stuff like that. Another friend of mine had really good taste the way Karen does in this book. So she took us all shopping and helped us pick out clothes that made us look hip, you know. So all of these little sweet little overlaps that we had. So in some ways we were very close, almost like siblings. And like I said, sometimes almost like parents. So in this book, I take those basic kinds of relationships. And again, to add a little bit of tension, I create these dynamics of betrayal between all of them, betrayal in love, betrayal in careers, betrayal in social status, all of these different things that uh, add a lot of spice, hopefully, to the story. And I just see what happens and all kinds of things do happen. But that, again, fights between these friends hurt even more than fights between normal friends because these friendships are also stand-ins in some cases for, for all these other things like parenting and, 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 and romance and, and other things. Indeed. Thinking about the multicultural makeup of this group of friends made me wonder about the title of your book in another way. I thought of an emphasis on our country with friends as a subtitle or maybe appearing after a colon. Is that... Oh, I like that. Mm. That's not totally far-fetched. No. Because 
I thought that part of what you were pointing out is the richness of our country that's provided by immigrants, by refugees. Yeah, I think that's a great analysis. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, it's our country. Um, and, it, it, you know, the earliest books, the first couple of novels I wrote, and certainly my memoir, were very much about growing up and being my parents' child. And I think many of the novels of, of younger writers, especially those from either marginal groups or immigrant groups, are about that experience because you're very much trying to make sense of this duality, you know, am I this or am I that? And in this case, this is in some ways my most American novel because it really is about our country as you, as you um, wonderfully pointed out. So, uh, and our country consists of people like Benoit and Karen and Sasha uh, and Masha and Natasha and all of these uh, folks. Some of them have, you know, Americanized names like Karen, some, some don't. And, Together, they form their own kind of society. But they're also deeply American at this point. And the book isn't about them sort of negotiating their identities vis-a-vis -vis their parents, uh, as, as one does when one is a child. They're, they are now fully American. Fully. Fully. And they now have to reckon with themselves as Americans while this country experiences tremendous problems. So that is, uh, you know, and, it, and another sort of complication is that their parents fled, fled very problematic countries back in the day, whether it was, you know, Korea after the Japanese uh, colonialism or, or, and the Civil War or India after partition with Pakistan or the Soviet Union after Hitler and Stalin and all those years of uh, communism. And their parents came here because they saw this country as a kind of safe harbor for them and even more importantly for their children. But in this year, in 2020, and one can argue even in a couple of years preceding that, all of that came under, under attack. The feeling of safety began to disappear. Um, the characters in this book are uh, fearing this truck with mysterious slogans in the back of it that keeps this black pickup truck that keeps circling their compound. And the mystery is eventually solved, but um, it adds even more tension because there's a kind of feeling of them being on this little island, this little... Um, cottage, there's these little cottages in the middle of a, of a sea of people that they don't really know. So absolutely, there's a kind of sense of, well, our parents brought us here to be safe, but now in 2020, as this pandemic is raging, no one is really putting an end to it. Uh, the country is completely divided. Uh, what kind of safety can we expect? Hmm. And Sasha, the refugee, now believes the countryside will provide an added refuge. How do those staying in Sasha's idyllic community contrast with the people who live in the area year-round? You mentioned this ominous black truck. Well, I think it is, it's interesting because there's, there's an issue of kind of class. Uh, the area in which I am speaking to you from is now seeing an exodus of people from the last couple of years from New York City uh, with the pandemic and even before there was some, but the pandemic really brought it to the fore. Uh, entire communities are being transformed. Uh, there's this kind of post-industrial city, very charming, but very down on its heels, down at its heels called uh, Kingston, New York, which all of a sudden is turning into uh, parts of Brooklyn. In fact, I was getting my license renewed at the uh, DMV and, and a woman came out and said, if you're from Brooklyn, go home. We're not going to remove that. <laughs> and, and so that's to, to me, you know, there's this fascinating kind of contrast because 
a lot of these people are leaving New York. They, many can't afford it. Many have now finally realized that they can have a family up here and telecommute. Um, but that there's also a kind of gentrification going on, which may not be too pretty with uh, people who have lived here all their lives um, being priced out of the area. And of course, there's the political difference. I mean, this area in which I live is possibly one of the most purple areas in America in the sense that it's literally 50-50 in terms of registration for Democrats and Republicans. And of course, with the people coming up from New York being more Democratic and the locals being far more Republican. So it's a kind of interesting Petri dish to look at uh, to begin with. But also all the people who are hiding out in Sasha's um, country home had the same feelings that I did, which is a feeling of guilt toward everyone left behind in New York. Because as I was writing this in March and April, New York really became uh, an abattoir. There were so many people dying. And the very center of that death was occurring in exactly the places where Sasha and Masha and Vinod and Karen all grew up, which was this part of Queens, uh, Elmhurst, Jackson Heights, all of these areas which now contain and have always contained huge amounts of immigrants many of whom did not have access to health care, many of whom were frontline workers and had no choice but to work during the, uh, the worst of the pandemic. So there was a feeling that I certainly shared with the characters in this book of, you know, here we are, we are relatively safe because, you know, everything around here was, was very, um, you, you would go to a grocery store and they would have everything set up for you and ready, you would just pick it up. There was, a, if you didn't want contact with another human being, you could survive without it. Whereas of course that wasn't true for say frontline workers uh, living in, in Queens and having to support their families through their frontline work. So yeah, it, it, there was definitely a lot of guilt and I think I shared that guilt with the, with the characters mm. in the book. Well, anyone with a conscience would. Would you read on page 238, beginning with the words, the mysterious bird? Okay. The mysterious bird wearing yellow shoulder pads had come out with her family for a makeshift worm picnic in the monumental forest just behind the porch. Two hatchlings dazed by the sunlight, happy because they had not yet experienced the full cold of this continent, peeked at each other while their dad sat on a high branch singing about the journey that had brought all of them here. Not a love song exactly, but a rendering of his life and worth as a beast of this earth, as a parent, as a lover, as a migrant, as a bird. And if we are to suspend our secular beliefs, even for half a paragraph, we can imagine the migrated souls of all the human ancestors presently at table, looking over their bloodline progeny, gathered together over the familiarity of cabbage and fried rice and the unfamiliarity of a meat disc between two circular pieces of bread, happy as parents in a playground when all of the children assembled play together quietly and at peace and no one's young feelings are hurt, and everyone will go home still innocent. It's gorgeous, Gary. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I did. Sometimes when you write a paragraph, you feel that it works. Very often I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm a heavy critic of my work, as I think every writer should be. But uh, I remember writing that and thinking, yeah, I, I get that bird. <laughs> and, and as I was writing it, I was on the porch, and there was a, a yellow shoulder-padded bird who was singing very loudly and I sort of tried to imagine if he was a migratory bird, just like the characters, the human characters in this book, uh, what he might be singing about. And that's sort of the, uh, the things that I put into his little bird brain. Oh, I loved it. I've read many reviews, and several reviewers have said this is the first 
great literary novel of the pandemic. Do you feel like there's more to be written about this surreal time of ours? Well, you know, I mean, part of the thing is that when the pandemic started happening and I saw, obviously there was a different administration in power, but when I saw the response of the government to this, I thought this is not going away anytime soon. Uh, when I saw the response of you know, these false theories about the virus, uh, all this misinformation going around, I thought, no, this is gonna be with us for a while. So in a sense, you know, as somebody who writes a lot about the present, I could see myself still writing about this a couple of years from now, you know. But also the other part of this is, and I think I've, I've mentioned this before, um, I feel like we are entering a time of great consequences, of great disasters. You know, I, I just did a series of readings in California and in uh, Portland, Oregon, and uh, you know, California, of course, now suffers wildfires on a regular basis, each more devastating than the last. Portland, which I had always thought had such a temperate climate, especially if you don't mind the rain, uh, you know, just had 115 degree weather during the summer, which killed many, many people, especially the elderly who didn't have air conditioning. We are, I think, in this country going to be living with one crisis after another, and we on this planet are going to be living with one crisis after another. Ecological, political, um, perhaps more uh, pandemics uh, coming down the line. So in a sense, if you're going to write about the present, you have to write about the fact that we are facing this new background, the same way as I mentioned before that somebody writing during World War II had to acknowledge that there was an all-consuming war going on. And I, 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 it's... It saddens me a little. It makes me want to go back to Chekhov's days. Although, you know, if you reread Uncle Vanya, which I, which I used in this in this book, even even the characters in that uh, play are are wondering about you know all the forests being cut down in Russia in the late nineteenth century uh, and, and what that would portend for the environment. So these subjects have always been with us, but now I think they're going to be a lot more accentuated, and I think it's going to be harder and harder to write anything, whether it's uh, you know. A, television or a film script or a novel or, or an essay or anything without acknowledging the fact that this background is on fire behind us at this point. Indeed. Generation L, as you label it. L. Yes, Generation Last is what people call Nat, unfortunately, in oh, this book. I love Nat. She is <laughs> so, in, in the beginning, her anxiety comes through so strongly, but then, I mean, she is one of your funniest characters. Yeah, she's a sweetheart. Yeah, it's, you know, I've got someone who has a little kid. How old is your child? Well, the same age as Nat. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a boy, but uh, he's uh, eight years old. Uh, yeah, it's very sweet. It's sweet because, you know, they're, you're, you're both very happy they're there, but you also very much worry about, uh, you know, having brought them into a world like this. So, it's, it's very anxious, but it's also the best part of your day. Author Gary Steingart from his November 2021 interview with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. More information about his book, Our Country Friends, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we get to hear from local artists in their own words. My name is Ilona Cutts. I'm a fine artist and I specialize in painting. I also do some three-dimensional pieces, but most of my work is oil painting. I think you could define my style as something between magical surrealism and pop surrealism. I'm what you would call a visual storyteller and my aim is to create art 
for the purpose of creating consciousness. Both my parents are very artistically inclined. My mother used to collect antiques and art. My father, on the other hand, loved visiting museums and used to take me to see art from a very early age. I spent most of my childhood growing up in Mexico and I was really influenced by the art in Mexico, specifically the Mexican muralist movement. At the age of 16, I set up my first art studio in the basement of my parents' home in Mexico City and I decided that I wanted to be a painter when I grow up, although back then I didn't really know what that meant in reality. There is so much inspiration to be found around us. There's not just one specific thing that inspires me. I can be inspired and awed by the tiniest of things, such as looking at a flower close up and imagining how those colors would look on canvas. I'm very inspired by nature, animals, and also the spirit realm. Something that you can't see or that's not tangible, but we can sense it in our subconscious. I choose to call Atlanta my home because I feel that Atlanta found me and not the other way around. I don't believe in coincidences. I believe that we have a path in life and that path has taken me to Atlanta. I feel very much at home in Atlanta because I'm surrounded by so much greenery. I had an idea of Atlanta that it was very much a city built on concrete with no greenery. But I was pleasantly surprised to find out that there's so many parks, so much wildlife and animals and trees and plants for me to enjoy here. I'm originally from Finland, so nature is important to me. And when I'm surrounded by nature, I feel like I'm at home. Artist Ilona Cutts and our series Speaking of the Arts. Coming up, we'll hear about the Atlanta Children's Film Festival, which begins tomorrow and runs through July 24th. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. Welcome back to City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis. Thank you for listening. The 15th annual Children's Film Festival is starting tomorrow, and it gives young, aspiring filmmakers the chance to sit in the director's chair. The festival was created by the organization Kids Video Connection, and their goal is to help foster the next generation of star filmmakers. Held on Emory University's campus, It includes virtual and in-person events and screenings. And joining me now via Zoom is the festival director, Alicia C. Johnson, along with Dr. Amy Aidman from Emory University's Department of Film and Media. Ladies, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for inviting us. I'm excited to be here with you. You know, until recently, I was aware this festival was known as Kids Video Connection Children's Film Festival. And now, of course, it's the Atlanta Children's Film Festival. This change seems to suggest some major growth. Have you guys seen a big surge in kids who are interested in filmmaking? I have. Since we changed the name, we have received so many more entries. So I'm really excited about the name change and the support that we're getting from people in the film industry. Well, filmmaking is seriously technical and creatively demanding in general, but clearly we see kids rising to the challenge. 
What unique perspective do you think kids are able to bring to the table when they're creating films? I think kids bring a lot of imagination to filmmaking. And they also bring a surprising amount of facility with technology. I'm super impressed, in fact, in awe of some of the films made by very young children, children elementary school age, who are doing things like writing and directing and doing the animation and the voices and everything on a short film, very imaginative short film, and also doing the whole thing on an iPad and then being able to explain it. Dr. Amen, what do you think the advantages are for a young person starting so early in this field? Well, if you're putting your sights on being a professional filmmaker or in the media industry, it's a huge leg up to, to start when you're young, I think, as it does with anything. If you're aiming to be a professional musician or a professional artist, when you start with those roots in childhood, that lays a foundation for the rest of your life. It feeds your interest and it feeds your passion. That's so true. And Dr. Eamon, I'm aware that in the past, you've really stressed the importance of helping kids learn media literacy in general. Can you help define that term for us and explain why it's so important? Yes. Well, that's part of the mission of the festival is to promote media literacy. And media literacy involves understanding not just what you see on the screen, but what's behind what you see on the screen. So how was this made? Who were the people involved? What's the equipment that's used? Who are the people who are in it? What are they doing? What are the different roles? And being able to to see that on the screen. And then a huge part of it and a huge way to learn is by working in video production, which you can now do as a child, because the equipment is so widely available. So just like you learn to write through reading and read through writing, the same is true with media literacy. Through media making, you learn about media literacy and learning media literacy helps you to be a media maker. That makes sense. I love that you pointed out just how uncomplicated some of the equipment is nowadays. And earlier you referenced shooting on an iPad. Is that the most common form for younger people who are creating nowadays? Many of them are creating on phones and many of them have um, more sophisticated equipment. So it really, it really varies. It's something that has changed enormously between, say, this generation growing up and my generation. For sure. So you have over 60 films that you're going to be screening. Alicia, I'd love to know about your selection process. We received over 100 films this year, and we have a film festival committee, and we have two to three people that will actually view the films and we will rate the films. And one thing that we try to do each year is make sure that we give the young filmmakers an opportunity to showcase their film in the film festival. We have films from 15 countries this year. Aside from the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, Finland, Germany, Israel, Czech Republic, Bahamas, Norway, China, Japan, Italy, Switzerland, India, 
and one that's actually made in Mongolia. That's incredibly diverse. It is. This film festival is about diversity in the films, in the filmmakers, in the places, in the themes. But the uniting theme of the festival this year is one family creating together. And so many of the films do focus on family issues, and many of them are collaborations between children and their families. And this year we have some funny, inspirational, and eye-opening films. One film that I really inspired me was Dear Mrs. President. It's an inspirational short animated film about a little girl with a big dream. She wants to become a president one day. The animation is very well done. And I'm just excited that we're able to show inspiring and encouraging films to our youth. That's sweet. And so some of the films are created by young people. Some are created by adults for young people. Where does Dear Mrs. President fall in? That film was created by an adult filmmaker. And it's about a young girl who is Latina, her name's Maria, and she is writing to the first woman president explaining how much she appreciates her and admires her. Oh, that sounds lovely. And you mentioned that this is an animated short. What type of animation are we talking about? I think this is 2D animation. This one is. There is an amazing range of kinds of animation, and I'm no animation expert, but You see everything from very simple kind of shadow puppets to claymation to all kinds of digital animation and people experimenting with different kinds of effects. And I think that having the opportunity to talk with some of the filmmakers, and there will be filmmakers at our event on July 23rd at Emory, is going to be very enlightening. And we also have An animation panel, which is one of our first workshops coming up. I think Alicia can talk more about that. Alicia, is this the one that is hosted by Alyssa Lewis, the Emmy Award winning animator? Yes, Alyssa Lewis will be conducting that workshop on July 7th at 11 a.m. And it's online, so people can register from anywhere in the country. She's been teaching that workshop for about four or five years in person. And last year due to COVID, she taught it online. She recently relocated to LA and I, she said, oh, Alicia, but I could do it online because she said she really wanted to continue to work with the Atlanta Children's Film Festival. This year, she added something really special where the children would actually create their own superhero. Oh, I love that. And you guys are so lucky to have her. She's incredibly talented. And I believe her new gig out in LA is as a recruiter for animated television and feature films at Netflix. Correct. What an amazing connection for these young people to make. If you're just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and my guests are Atlanta Children's Film Festival director, Alicia C. Johnson, and Dr. Amy Aidman from Emory University's Department of Film and Media. Let's talk about another selection from the festival called Rainbow. This film unpacks the taboo in Chinese culture that discourages conversations about poverty. Can either of you tell us a bit about the filmmaker and her inspiration behind the film? Yes, the film is by Tan Hui. 
She lives in the U.S., but she's from China. This film is based on an incident in her family in which her children, her two children, wanted to get her a Mother's Day gift, but they didn't have money. And you're not supposed to talk about money or about not having money. That's a taboo. But this film is just stunningly animated. It's so beautiful. Shouldn't be missed. And it shows the love and the ingenuity of her children in trying to get her a beautiful gift that doesn't cost any money. That is sweet. Alicia, was there another film that you wanted to draw our attention to? This is a film, The Fox and the Turtle by eight-year-old Penelope Campbell. It's a stop-motion animated short film, and it's about a turtle that helps a fox. But what's so interesting about it, she produced this film during COVID, and she said she wanted to create something that would show how people can work together. And it's a little turtle that helps a fox recover his backpack in the river. So I just think, or even to come up with the idea, how can we work together and show animals working together? That was her concept of this film. And I'm excited because she's eight years old. It was Claymation also where she actually created the little animals. Wow. She was actually the, did the voiceover for the main character. That's very impressive. Well, we've been mentioning that the festival includes intensive programs, and one of the most intense is the Intro to Filmmaking Camp, where kids produce a short film over just five days. Can either of you speak a little to how they're guided by professionals to achieve what really is a daunting task? This will be our second year with this workshop last year due to COVID, we conducted that workshop online. And I said, well, how can we do this in five days? But we had an excellent group of media professionals that helped with this workshop. There will be the intro to filmmaking, which we'll talk about the production process. And then Fran Burstellinelli will be one of the writers. So she guided the students to the writing process and they came up with an excellent film last year I think it was Aliens Encounters. And the children worked on their individual scripts. We edited the piece together. Um, it's a small animated piece. And this year, we're going to elaborate on that more, where one day during that workshop, we're going to actually have the children meet and we're going to actually shoot the project. Last year, they shot their project on their um, iPhones. This year, we're going to come together one day throughout that workshop, and we will show the children how to operate the camera, audio, lights, and shoot that one day, then come back and have an editor to edit the project together. Wow. What an opportunity for these kids. Earlier, you mentioned that on July 23rd, there is a family day. Can you guys tell me what that actually entails? Yes. The Film Festival Family Day will be held at Emory on Saturday, July 23rd. And the morning is going to consist of different panels, some for young children and some for older children. I think Alicia could probably address the details of the, the panels more in depth. And then the afternoon is going to be a film screening showcase in which we highlight some of our award-winning films. And these are going to be films for the whole family. So this, this is a family event, and we really encourage you to come out and take this wonderful opportunity to share these films with your family. 
Dr. Aidman, in general, do you think that there are life skills that students are able to master by participating in film education that that aren't necessarily about making film? Oh, absolutely. One of the things you really learn is how to work with other people. So that just the process of filmmaking, you've got to work with other people and everybody's got to be on the same page to make things happen. You've got to collaborate. You've got to negotiate about what's going to work the best. But I think the other thing is really taking something from an idea to a finished product and learning everything in between. To me, that's, that's a life skill. And something else, maybe a side effect, is also, I think, for young people to be able to imagine a future for themselves as filmmakers, media producers. Atlanta Children's Film Festival director Alicia C. Johnson and Dr. Amy Aidman from Emory's Department of Film and Media. The 15th annual Atlanta Children's Film Festival is starting tomorrow, and it runs through July 24th. You can find out more about the festival screenings and events on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., comedian Dimitri Martin stops by ahead of his Saturday show at Variety Playhouse. And we'll catch up with Atlanta artist Grant Henry and hear the history behind Sister Louise's Church of the Living Room and Ping Pong Emporium. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org. There you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.